Thank you so much for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in six different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about Our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Last week, I spoke to you about the first king of Israel. What was his name? Saul. Don't you love reading about heroes from the Bible? Their strength and their weakness, their, their, their faith in the midst of fear. We love the against all odds stories that we hear about, as Pastor Chris mentioned in the storms, as long as we don't have to go through circumstances that include us in them. We love hearing about miracles where God rescued somebody when it seemed like all hope was gone, unless we had to go through it ourselves. Last week, we learned about the first king of Israel and about his failure and his folly. We call the sermon, The Fall of Saul, about how God had to remove him because this once young, humble man who was chosen by God, he was almost seven feet tall. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone. He became the first king. And when God chose him, he was humble, he was simple, and he was sincere. But along the way, he became proud and arrogant. And eventually, when the prophet who anointed him to be king, Samuel, gave him a commandment from God to go and to destroy a group of people called the Amalekites. How many of you remember that story yet last week? The, the, the people of Amalek. Say Amalek. And God commanded him to go and to totally destroy them. And when you read a story like that in the Bible, you go, Pastor, why would God do that? Because when the children of Israel, too many of them, two million of them were coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites said that they would let them pass through their land, but then they attacked them and ambushed them from the back where there was old people, women, children, and the Amalekites literally committed a type of Old Testament abortion. They would take their swords and go and literally rip babies out of the bellies of their mothers. And God saw it. And God said, I want you to go and I want you to wipe them out and don't spare anything. But Saul didn't do what God told him to do. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't the first time. Saul, the more that he got exalted and the more that he got blessed, the more that he thought he could do things on his own. Sound like anybody you know? As a matter of fact, I think that most of us do better when we're struggling in our faith than we do when we are blessed and prosperous and have options. Someone said it like this, for every Christian, one Christian that can stand prosperity and still honor God and be humble, there's a million that have to have adversity and stay in adversity to be dependent upon God. Can I tell you how much God loves you? If it takes adversity for you to be dependent upon God and that's the only way you trust him, he loves you enough to bring it early and often. Look at the person beside you and go, I'm social distancing. <laughs> but God said, I'm going to remove Saul. And he removed him. The prophet that appointed him king came and said, because of your disobedience and because of your dishonesty and because you will not honor God, God has removed you and he has found someone who is a man after his own heart. A man after his own. How many of you would like people to say when they talk about you, what do you think about them? And they go, they love God. That's what I could tell you about them. The main thing I know about them is they love God. How many of you would like to have that said about you? 
As a matter of fact, that's actually the first commandment in the Bible. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first command. So God said, I chose someone. He was humble when I got him. He became proud and arrogant and disobedient once I blessed him. But now I am choosing a man after my own heart. And now we fast forward this story 15 years. Saul is dead. David, who killed Goliath when he was about 15 years old, never takes over all of the 12 tribes of Israel as king until he's 30. He's now 45 years old. It's been since he was 15 years old that he killed Goliath. He's won great victories. And now all of the people are following God and seeking God. And he is their godly leader, David, the man after God's own heart. And now about 45, what some might call a midlife crisis. We find our hero, the giant killer, King David. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, we pick up our story. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent, say it with me, Joab. Joab was the captain over his army. David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight against the Ammonites, and they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege in the city of Reba. However, read it with me, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Let me tell you why that was unusual. Because even if the king didn't go, once they secured victory, the king would come so that he would be able to be honored as the one who helped conquer the city. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace, surfing the internet. And he looked out over the city in the outer net, and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, let me just stop a moment. How long would you have to stare to notice, number one, that she was taking a bath, and number two, that she was very beautiful? And he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, she is Bathsheba. Her father is Elam, and her husband is Uriah the the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. And when she completed her purification rites, having gone through her time of the month, she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is I'm pregnant. The bad news is you're the daddy because my husband's at war. Then David sent word to Joab, the captain over his armies and said, send Uriah the Hittite quickly. So Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah arrived, David looked at him, the king, and said, How's the army getting along? And how's the war progressing? And Uriah told him. He said, now go home and relax. And David even sent a gift to Uriah's house after he left the palace. And when Uriah didn't go home, he slept that night instead at the palace entrance with the rest of the king's guards. 
And David heard that Uriah had not gone home. He summoned him and he said, what's, what's the matter? Well, why did you go home last night after being away from your beautiful wife so long? Uriah replied, the ark where the Ten Commandments in the presence of God are, the tent, and the armies of Israel and of Judah, your tribe, are living in tents in Joab, the commander of my master's army, are camping in open fields. How can I go home and wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Let me just stop one moment. Can you imagine how David felt? Here's a man who had every legal right to go and be with his wife. The good fortune of saying the king called me in. Man, I'm the most blessed man there is. I'm going to go be with my gorgeous wife tonight. And I'm going to thank God I had this opportunity. But instead, he was more loyal to his king than his king was loyal to God and him. We'll we'll stay here tonight, David said. (laughs) Stay here tomorrow, and and then you can return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him to the house and got him. Come on, they drive through the daiquiri factory in circles. (laughs) But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. And again, he slept at the palace entrance of the king's guard. Even drunk. He had more conviction than a backslidden king did sober. Again, he slept in the palace entrance with the king's guards. So the next morning, David had to go to plan three. David wrote a letter to send to Joab, the captain of his armies, and he gave it to Uriah to deliver it, knowing how loyal he was. He would never look at it. The letter instructed Joab saying, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy's soldiers came out of the city to fight him, Uriah the Kittite was killed along with several other soldiers. Then Joab sent a report back to David from the battle. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, why did the troops get so close to the city? Don't you remember stories back when Abimelech, the son of Gideon, was killed by a woman who just threw a millstone down from the wall? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then tell him, Uriah died too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields. And we chased them back into the city gate. And the archers shot from the wall against us. And some of the king's men were killed, including... Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword kills and devours one one day and another one tomorrow. Fight harder next time. Conquer the city. But when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent to her and brought her to his palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Let me just ask you a question. Does this sound like a man after God's own heart? As a matter of fact, if I as your pastor did any one of the multiple things he did, could I still be your pastor? Oh, don't act all holy. Oh, yes, pastor. 
You got mad when Pastor Chris spoke about tithing. Quit lying. You'd have probably left the church over that, but you go, but he used to be a New Orleans saint and he got a Super Bowl ring. But if Pastor Jacob says that, then I'm gone. What did David do to go so wrong? How could this man who violated so many principles, who violated so many people, how could this man who is an adulterer and a murderer and now is covering it up, how could he be called a man after? You, you know, when, when we read this book, we, we always read it. And, and, and probably like people that die. You know, you know, when you really love someone and they die, you forget all the sinful and stupid stuff they did and all you remember is the good stuff. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we, we see the highlight moments. We remember that Peter preached after dying Jesus. We remember all the wonderful things that he walked on water, the different things that different ones of the disciples and the leaders in the Bible did. But you know why I love the Bible? Because it doesn't mince meat. It doesn't mince words about anything that they did that was sinful and stupid and wicked and wrong. Because all God has to work with is simple, stupid, wicked, wrong people. But those of y'all that are holy, you can just stay right there. Because I know that you don't sin as much as I do. But I can tell you this. Look right here. The moment you begin thinking God uses you because you're good instead of the fact that he's gracious and he's good is the moment you get ready for your own fall too. Every person here, your pastor included, is one step away from stupid. Every one of us have walked through moments like this and had the same opportunity and done some of these things and you get to a moment in your life where you feel like, I'm not like anybody in the Bible. God could never use me. How could this man be a man after God's own heart? The man he replaced, the king that God removed, you know what he did? He kept a king and a few sheep and goats. But what God is after today is not people with a perfect life. He's after people with a perfect heart for him. Yes. Just a quick question. I want to be sure I'm speaking to the right people. How many of you are pretty sure if it's for perfect people, that excludes you? But how many of you can say, if it's just a perfect heart, even when I fail, that can include me? And that's why the church of Jesus Christ is not a palace for the perfect. It's a hospital for the hurting. And don't ever forget that. What did David do to go so wrong? I want to take you through a list of things that he did. Number one, he was in a place he never should have been. Where was he supposed to be? A war. Oh, I just got up at night. I was tired. So I just opened up my computer. Just surfing over the city. I, I didn't know that was there. It was an invitation. It said, Nasty Nikki wants to talk to you. <laughs> How did I know who Nasty Nikki was? She could have been an old girlfriend from Karen Crow High School. Despicable Donald, 
Nice to meet you. How did I know who Despicable Donald was? Can I share something with you? Doing the right thing and being in the right place where you should be keeps you from a lot of wrong situations. Some of you that are old like me might remember when your parents used to tell you, nothing good happens after midnight. You you know, when I was a kid growing up in Houston, you're going to find this hard to believe. Channel 13, anybody grew up in Houston? Channel 13, their news was called Eyewitness News. And Ward Chandler would begin 10 o'clock news going, it's 10 o'clock. Where are your children? You know what they'd say now? It's 10 o'clock. Who are your children? Being in the right place at the right time where you're supposed to be saves you from a lot of trouble. And if you think for a moment that in this wicked world that you can retreat from the battle, he retreated from the war, so the enemy brought the battle to him. He retreated from where he should be, so the enemy brought the battle to him, just as he will to you and to me. He was in a place he never should have been. Number two, He asked questions he shouldn't have asked. Think of the thought of how this had to play out. He had to walk over the city. You think he'd ever walked on the top of his palace before? Okay, Okay, simple question. Have you ever walked in your front yard? Do you know who lives across the street? Do you know about the time the Boudreaux's pulled in the house? Okay, so did he. And I am sure there were times that he'd passed before, focused right, heart guarded. Like Job who said, I will set no unclean thing before my eyes. And he'd protected his heart. But this day, when he should have been somewhere else, he's walking. He's surfing the outer net. And he's walking around and he's looking. And he stops long enough to number one. Listen, anybody can have temptation come at you. Okay, let me say this one more time. I know women are going, I'm not agreeing to nothing right now because I I slap. (laughs) Don't cuss in church. All right. Anybody can, someone can rub up in front of you or something can flash up on the screen. Anybody can do and experience something like that. How many of you have ever just been minding your own business and something you weren't asking for, looking for, or expecting jumped up in front of you? Raise your hand. But how many of you know that you're not responsible for it coming, but you are responsible for preparing for the moment that it comes? Let me help you. We can no longer protect our children from evil. We must now equip them to deal with evil when it comes. When I grew up as a kid, if you wanted to see a playboy, you know what you had to do? Bro, it was some work. I mean, it was so hard. You had to get a friend of yours, okay, to go and start talking to the guy at the Circle K and get him pulled over to the side because the playboys had a brown paper bag in front of him. And you would sneak over around. He would distract him. You'd get one of your buddies, okay? While he was looking, he snuck it up because you couldn't get it if you were a minor. I mean, you walked out of the store like this. Then we all convulged on a six-pack and a centerfold and thought that we were just, we were the most brilliant people in the world. 
Every day, your six-year-old is exposed to more than that in an instant at a click. Not just on the computer, not just on the phone, on regular television. On regular television. You can't hide them from it, so you better prepare them to deal with it. Back then, we had to pursue evil to find it. Today, evil pursues you. He asked questions he shouldn't have asked. Whose wife is that? He double-clicked. He saw that she was bathing and stopped, and then he stopped, and, and, he, and he stared. Someone once asked Billy Graham, is, is it a sin to see a beautiful woman? And he said, no, but it is a sin to take a double take. And the guy said, good, then the first time I'll look long and hard. You have to prepare yourself with the covenant that you've already made with your eyes and with your heart before you ever get to that moment because the enemy, you might not do what you should do, but I promise you the devil will do what he should do. Number three, he violated covenant friendships. This, this, is, this is overwhelming right here. This is overwhelming. You see, before David became the king, over all of Israel. He was the king of only his tribe, Judah. And he had a group of men that had been with him since he was a young shepherd boy after he killed Goliath. They were called his mighty men. There were 37 of them. Those were his boys. Those were the guys that had been with him all through the ranks. Those were his leaders. And now I want to give you a little picture. The scripture tells you a little bit about how amazing these men were. 2 Samuel 23, 8. Listen to what it says. And these are the names of the mighty men that David had. Joash, Bashabab, the Tachamite. You know that brother had been fighting all of his life. He couldn't even spell his name in first grade. He was the chief among them, and he was called Adino the Esnite because he killed, watch this, how many? 800 men at one time. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. Now, you know he's been fighting since first grade, too. They just called his name out. Boudro, Dodo. He just took his shirt off and said, let's go. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the white. Wow. Uh, of the three mighty men which David had defied the Philistines and were gathered together in the battle, and the men of Israel retreated, and he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the... He killed so many people that they could not pry the sword out of his hand. And it lists all the men. And now let me go down to the last of his mighty men. It's in verse 39. And Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. A man who had risked his life. A man who was a dear friend. A man who had even been willing to die. All of that. And is now, he's violated that. As a matter of fact, when it says, when they said, who is he? Who is she? Uriah, her father, 
Her grandfather was one of David's closest advisors. His name was Ahithophel. So by doing this, David violated one of his best friends. By doing this, he had violated one of his greatest counselors. Look right here. When God gives you a godly friend, when he gives you somebody that will go to war with you, when he gives you somebody to go to battle with you, that's because those are people he's put in your life to hedge you, to strengthen you. Don't violate God-given relationships. When God gives you something, he gives it to you wrapped up in flesh and blood. He violated close relationships. Number four, he tried to cover up his sin and all that did was lead to more sin. Lust, adultery, murder. Number five, he had a man killed because he wouldn't kill his pride and lust. Look right here and I want you to listen carefully to what I'm going to say. I've been married 38 years. Look right here. Man, I want every man looking at my brown face right now. Brown lives matter. <laughs> look, look right here. My wife is gorgeous. We've been married 38 years. It's far more than I deserve, and she's far more beautiful. For the first two years that we were married, I would wake up and just look at Michelle as she lay there in bed. She will tell you that that's a gospel truth. Just thinking, I can't believe she married me. Now she wakes up in bed the last two years looking at me going, I can't believe I married him. But <laughs> kind of the same way, just a different meaning. <laughs> but look right here. There is not a man who is married to the most beautiful woman. I don't care how beautiful she is. There isn't a woman alive that can tame the heart of a man who is yet to surrender to God. You can't buy enough cute clothes. You can't buy enough lingerie. You can't do enough to tame the heart of a man if God himself cannot tame it. You can't. I've counseled women by the droves who tried. You can't. God made this, and he's the only one that can tame this, and everybody should clap right there. Number six, his heart became hard. His heart became hard. Oh, well, you kill one, one sword kills one, sword kills the other. Because you see, when you, this man who was a man after God's own heart, his heart was sensitive to God. And now sin had taken over and he'd allowed this sin to erupt and begin to take over his life. And now he wasn't hiding and tending his heart for God. He was hiding his sin. Does this sound like a man after God's own heart? Okay, that's a question. Remember, we have two jobs when I preach. My job is to set the trap and your job is to fall in it. So when I set the trap, I'm doing my job, but you're just not doing yours. Does this sound like a man after God's own heart? W would you let him be your pastor? Oh, that's your pastor? I heard he married Pastor Chris's wife, killed him, wearing a Super Bowl ring now, walking around with skinny jeans with his chest out, saying, who that, who that, who that? That's the church you go to? Really? I have heard about your pastor. He's a mess. 
Does any of this seem like a man after God's own heart? Now, let me fast forward the story. Twelve months transpire. Twelve months. It's been 12 months since he's been right with God. I don't know what he's done. I don't know what he said. But the prophet, near his best friend, a new prophet, his name is Nathan, who is a dear friend of David's, comes to talk to David and tell him a story. Because you see on the outside, he looks like a hero. He married the wife of a grieving soldier's wife, a soldier that died in battle, and he's taken her in as his own wife, and now she's had a child, and everyone thinks the child is from her husband, but God knows the truth. She knows the truth, and David knows the truth. So one year later, this conversation begins in 2 Samuel chapter 12 between Nathan the prophet and David the king. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. Hey, David, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich, the other one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle, and the poor man owned nothing except one little bitty lamb that he'd bought. He raised up the lamb. It grew up with him like one of his children. It ate from his own plate, drank from his own cup. He cuddled with it. He held it in his arms like a baby daughter. And one day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man's house. But instead of killing one of the animals from his own vast herd, he took the poor man's little lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David jumped up and was furious. Who is this? As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. And I'll make him pay back four times the lamb to the poor man that he stole because he had no pity. And Nathan looked at David and said, David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you to be king. I saved you from the power of Saul, the previous king. I gave you his house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And now listen to this. This this is the part that blows me away. Look right here. Read this with me. And if that wasn't enough, what? Can you believe that God said, David, I plucked you up when you were a little bitty shepherd boy rejected by your family. I gave you the kingdom. I gave you your master's wives. I gave you thrones. I gave you victories over. And David, if you just wanted more, you didn't have to go get it. All you had to do was ask me for it. Why would God say that? God doesn't have any problem giving you. He doesn't have any problem blessing you. What he has a problem with is you taking things because when you take them, they rule your heart instead of them coming from him and he rules your heart. He will not share this throne with anyone else. He won't. He won't. Look at me. I love my wife. She doesn't even come a close second to my Jesus. I love my children. They don't come a close second to him. He's the one that found me in my mother's bar. He's the one that yanked me up out of the hood. He's the one that gave me a father that was not mine. He's the one that raised me up, gave me an opportunity to preach his word and to teach his truth. It's all him, 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 him. 
And you better remember for you, he remembers where you are. He remembers where you were when you were a poor little child asking God to bless you. And it was all him, him, him. And the moment that you forget it was him, he will take away everything he got to get it away from you to get back at you and your heart. I would have given you more. Why have you done this, this? Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Kittite with the sword of the Ammonites and have stolen his wife. And from now on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah to be your own wife. And then he begins to tell him all these things that will happen to him and his family because of his disobedience. Look at verse 13. David's first words that come out of his mouth. And David confessed to Nathan, read it with me. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you will not die for this sin. But the child, your child will die. And after this, Nathan returned home and the Lord sent a deadly illness on David and Uriah's, or David and Bathsheba's child, the wife of Uriah, and the child died. Can I ask you a question? Does this sound like a man after God's own heart? What made David a man after God's own heart? Number one, he loved God. He loved God. Even in his fallenness, even in his brokenness, even in all that he did, when he was confronted with his sin, do you know what he said? I have sinned against, not Bathsheba, not Uriah, not my kingship. I have sinned against the Lord. Saul wanted the kingdom back. He wanted God back. Here's the second thing. He loved truth. Do you think it was hard to hear that when you're the king? Do you think it's hard to hear that when you have warriors standing beside you that at an instant's look will kill you and strike somebody down in a minute? Listen to what Proverbs writes 27 verse 6. Solomon writes, the wounds of a sincere friend are better than the kisses. Of, you know why it's called wounds? Because it hurts. Do you have somebody that loves you enough, that knows you, K-N-O-W, that can N-O you? No, don't do that. Do you have someone that loves you enough that's willing to risk their relationship to speak truth to you so that they can save your life and not just salvage y'all's relationship? He loved truth. Truth is a two-edged sword, the word of God. One side of it cuts and the other side heals. Here's the third thing. He broke when he was confronted. Saul blamed if you were here last week, he blamed it on everybody else. But David wrote a psalm. I want to read this to you. Some of you don't even know this. Look at this. This is the entrance to Psalms 51. Look at this. To the chief musician, a psalm of David when, read it with me, Nathan the prophet, what? Went into him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Listen to what he prays and says. Have mercy upon me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out my stain of my sin. Wash me and cleanse me from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion and it haunts me day 
and night. Does that sound like a repentant man? That's why he was a man after God's own heart. Here's number four. He repented to God. Look at verse four. He goes on from the same, same passage. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You will be proven right when you say your judgment is against me and just. For I was born a sinner and yes, for the very moment my mother conceived me. You purely, you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back the joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stains of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will turn to you. You know what he's saying? God, if you'll forgive me, I'll show people God will forgive anybody. If you'll restore me, I'll say, yeah, I'm the murderer. Yeah, I'm the one that committed adultery. Yeah, I'm the one that's jacked up. But guess what? I got a God that loves me more than I am messed up me. Maybe you're here today and you think, Pastor, if you really knew me, you, you wouldn't believe that God could use me. The next time you feel like God can't use you, remember this. Noah was a drunk. Abram was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. I'm sorry. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem and an anger problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David had an affair, was a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. I'm not doing that, even though it's in the Bible. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. Peter denied Jesus. The disciples fell asleep when Jesus needed them the most. Mary worried about everything. Mary Magdalene was, well, you know. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer. And Lazarus was dead. So if God can use them, he can still use you and me. And now, I want to read you my final verse as I close. Because Matthew chapter 1 gives us the name of people that produced the lineage of Jesus. Listen to what it says. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begat Perez and Zerah and Tamar, and Perez begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Amenadab, and Amenadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz by Ruth, and Boaz begat Obed by Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. You know what that means? That means that the grace of God is greater than the greatest mistake you and I will ever make in our whole lives. How many of you ever been to a funeral? On the back of every card you get is a little shepherd and he's got a little staff. And you know what those words say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want 
He makes me to lie down. And that murder and adulterer and unfaithful friend has been comforting people for 4,000 years with his songs and with his words. And if he used him in spite of what he was because he had a heart after God, then he can use you and me in spite of who we are. Would you bow with me right now? Father, I, I thank you so much for the power of your word. Because it is. It's your word that changes lives. It's these holy inspired stories that remind us that you are the God who raises the dead. That you're the God that breathes into dirt and uses dirt bags for your glory. Today, we thank you that what you're looking for is not perfection, but a perfect heart. One that won't quit when they fail. One that may stumble and fall, but understands that there is a God of grace who will lift us and carry us on. Look up at me a moment. In almost every miracle that Jesus performed, you know how they got his attention? He was walking and people would say, there's Jesus, there's Jesus, there's Jesus. And then someone from the crowd would yell out, Jesus, son of David. And he would stop and look and go, someone knows who I am. Descendant of David. He was perfect. Was titled by the most imperfect man in the Old Testament. (laughs) To remind you and me, it's this that God's after. It says this God's after. Would you bow your head with me? I want to ask you the most important question of your life. Jesus said in John chapter 3 to a very religious man named Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He said, unless a man is born again, he won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. So I have one quick question for you today. Have you been born again? You say, Pastor, what does that mean? I've been Christian. I've been baptized. I've joined the church. Isn't that good enough? That's a great start, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven or to enter into it. My birthday is June the 17th, but my spiritual birthday is the week before Easter, 1971, when I prayed with an African-American counselor in a chemistry lab. That day became my spiritual birthday. I was born again that day. I was a spiritual baby. I've struggled. I've fallen. But my birth spiritually began that day. I was born again. Have you been born again? You say, Pastor, how can I do that? I've been christened, baptized, joined the church. Isn't that enough? Great start. But it's as easy as A, B, C. A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ became your sin bearer. And he died for your sin so you wouldn't have to die with your sin. C, Confess Christ as your Lord and Savior as you turn away from sin to be born again. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed once to be born again. It only happens once, just like the day you were born. I want to ask you to give me the privilege of praying with you today to let today be the beginning of your spiritual birth, your spiritual journey. 
So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm the only one that's looking. I'm just going to ask you on the count of three to raise your hand. No, I'm just going to pray for you right at your seat. I'm not going to embarrass you. But you say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I need to be born again. I need to begin my spiritual journey. I thought I had to be good enough or perfect enough. But if David could be a man after God's own heart, I can be a man or woman after God's own heart. One, God brought you here. It's not an accident. Two, every circumstance of your life is led to this moment. And God is tugging at your heart even now. Today's your day to be born again and to begin your spiritual birth. Three, if that's you, lift it high right now. I'm going to pray for you right at your seat. Yes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Anywhere else? Nineteen. Yes, sir. You may put your hand down. Last ten seconds, Pastor. I didn't raise my hand with these nineteen, but I should have. I didn't, but I should have. Would you pray for me? If you didn't raise your hand but should have, I want you to raise it and wave it at me right now so I can acknowledge you. Twenty. Twenty-one. 22, 23. All right. Now with every head bowed and every eye closed, your hands down, let's pray out loud together. Church, we're going to join you. Those of you that raised your hand, we're all going to pray this prayer together for you to be born again. Let's pray out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn away from sin to be born again. Today, God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. And I'm born again in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about Our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com.